You know, I think it's appropriate that uh, on the day that we announce uh, that the Lord seems to be giving us a new facility, that we're back just talking about the church and how we're to function and just going through our text here. And as you're finding 1 Timothy 3, I want to just give you a little brief history here. The New Testament has a rich and vibrant testimony of women, women who devoted themselves to the service of their Lord Jesus Christ. We think of Joanna and Susanna. Luke chapter 8 records that they were wealthy women who provided financially for Jesus and the apostles as they preached the gospel. Similarly, Romans 16.2 tells us about Phoebe, who was a generous financial supporter of the apostle Paul. There are the nameless women who set an example and taught the younger women as exemplified by Titus 2, 3 through 5, the day-to-day faithfulness of godly women who elevated the sanctification of the church by training and mentoring the younger women in the church. We think of the women of whom Paul speaks in Romans 16, 6 and 12, who worked hard in the Lord for the ministry of the gospel, Mary and Tryphena and Tryphosis and Persis. There are the women who showed compassion and care for the ministry, Mary Magdalene and the women with her who helped care for the basic needs of Jesus and his men, as Mark 15 tells us. We have the Samaritan woman whom Jesus met at the well in John 4. She was the first to bring the gospel of Christ to her own family and to the nearby towns, and many people came to faith in Christ because of her. There are the disciple-making women who spread and explained the word of God in their spheres of influence. Anna, the prophetess, was evangelizing all the people who would come to the temple when Jesus was an infant, Luke chapter 2. Timothy received Bible training at the feet of his mother and grandmother. 2 Timothy 3 tells us this, setting him up to be a preacher probably by the age of 19 or 20. Priscilla privately helped Apollos, the great preacher, to know the way of God more accurately in Acts 18. Some women suffered for the sake of the gospel. Again, Priscilla and her husband Aquila, Romans 16, 3 and 4 says that they risked their necks for the gospel. They risked being beheaded for promoting the good news of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. In Romans 16, 7, Paul mentions a woman named Junia who was well known by the apostles because she was imprisoned along with Paul for the gospel. We think of Euodia and Syntyche and Philippi who were called by Paul the honored term fellow workers, in this case meaning their evangelism efforts to the lost. Lydia from Thyatira, who was saved in Philippi, prevailed upon Paul and his companions to stay with her in her large home, and she hosted the first church gatherings in Philippi as well. And we think also in the early church of the the countless and nameless younger women who went against the feminist culture of the Greco-Roman world and they obeyed Paul's admonition that young moms are to be busy at home, loving their husbands, loving their children, Titus 2, 4, and 5, resulting in children getting saved and marriages and families that were now strong and could strengthen the brand new church of Jesus Christ. And in her final appearance in the New Testament, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is not seen as a venerated and revered hero, but simply as a faithful prayer warrior. Acts 1 records that she was among the 120 gathering continually for prayer in the days between the ascension of her son Jesus Christ into heaven 
and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And I would say this, it's not just the church of Jesus Christ has somehow been enriched by the women of the church. The women of the church are the ligaments and the joints and the marrow of the body of Christ. The women who yearn for the good news of the forgiveness offered in Christ to be spread to the community, spread to the world, spread within their homes, who make the ministry of the shepherds infinitely more multiplied and effective. And that's our topic today in our final message in our micro-series, we might call it, on the church's servants here in 1 Timothy 3. Our first message, we looked at the foundation of the servants of the church. Our second message, we looked at the qualifications of the servants of the church. And today, to finish this little mini-series, I want to do a special topic, women who serve as servants in the church. Now, to properly set the context for the one verse that we're considering today, let's Reread this entire text from 1 Timothy 3, verse 8 through verse 13. Follow along with me as I read. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And so right here in the middle of this short text, we have a, a small note on women who serve in the church in verse 11. It's a short section, very short, little side note almost, kind of just couched right here in the middle. We did a whole mini-series on the godly women of the church back in 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15, and now Paul revisits that topic in very short, compact uh, review format. Now, before we really dive into verse 11, there's a couple of questions that swirl around this verse. And I think it'll be better for us if we deal with those questions first, and then we can have a better foundation with which to understand verse 11. Here are these two questions that that swirl around this. The first one is, who are these women? And the second question is, what's the extent of their authority? First question, who are these women, and what is the extent of their authority? The first question has to do with the identity of these women. Who are they? The basic debate, is around whether or not, as the ESV and many other English translations render this, are these deacons' wives? It says here in the ESV, they're wives likewise. Or is it more generally women who serve in the church? Now, the major reason for this debate is that the Greek word translated wives is the same Greek word for women. And so the the word itself doesn't tell us. Now, to just give you a, a little preview here, it's pretty much a photo finish as to which group Paul is speaking of, and ultimately we're going to find it's not that important a question, but it is a question that many ask. And so let's just look at both sides of this just for a moment. There are tremendous arguments in favor of this speaking of the wives of deacons. Not that this is a requirement that wives of deacons must serve, but if they serve alongside their husbands, then they should have these requirements. Here are some of the arguments in favor of this speaking of the wives of deacons, as the ESV says here. Paul gives qualifications of deacons before and after this, and it seems very parenthetical. It seems like almost an afterthought. It shows that Paul 
is not introducing a different class of servants. He's making a comment about the wives of those who are serving. We would also say that if this is a whole new office, we would expect a little more detail, especially in light of chapter 2, verse 12, which clearly limits the role of women in terms of authority in the church. We also see that there's no mention of the marital status of the women, which Paul does do in other pastoral epistles when the church office is being spoken of. Because in Greek here, there's not the word wife in particular. It's just woman, which can be wife. Now, the assumption then would be that these are women being mentioned because they're married to deacons and it would be practical for them to be able to work together for whatever tasks the deacon is assigned to. And again, we would say that this is likely speaking of wives because uh, the same Greek word is used in verse 12, let deacons be the husband of one wife, very clearly meaning wife. And so there are tremendous arguments in favor of this speaking of wives. On the other hand, there are tremendous arguments in favor of this speaking of women in general who serve in the church, either in an official capacity like a male deacon or in a less official capacity. Here, here's some of the arguments in favor of this being women in general. Paul says their wives likewise. This shows a third distinct group, and this is a very strong argument since Paul uses the same term to distinguish particular groups in numerous other places in the pastoral epistles. First Timothy 2, uh, here in verse, in verse 3, in fact, deacons likewise, or verse 8 rather, uh, Titus 2, verse 3, verse 6, likewise says different group. We also again note that there's nothing in the Greek text such as a possessive their wives. That's not there to indicate a connection to the deacons. Their wives is a decision that translators made. We also see that Paul gave no qualifications for elders' wives, which would seem like that would be more imperative. So it's reasonable to question why there would be qualifications for deacons' wives. Now, I'm going to say, as a side note, that's a slightly weaker argument because a, a deacon's wife can serve like a deacon. An elder's wife cannot serve like an elder. And so that might be a weaker argument. But here's a stronger argument In Koine Greek, in Biblical Greek, there is no word for deaconess. There is no word for it. A different term, diakonisa, was used for deaconess, but that was in future centuries in extra-biblical Greek. But in in Paul's day, that word doesn't exist. And then finally, we would say that there are qualifications which parallel those of male deacons, and so it seems to be general to women who serve. So how are we to view this? First of all, it's not a salvation issue. It's about question number 4,000. I'm going to ask the Lord when I get to heaven. The debate is so close that we really have the freedom to exercise some latitude and use some biblical logic to assert some other facts from farther outside of the pastoral epistles. Here's some just facts that we would all agree on. The first fact is that since the standard of qualifications to serve has been set, and that certainly has precedent in many other places in the New Testament, we can rightly assume that any woman and any man who serves should be striving for these qualifications. We can, we can agree to that. We wouldn't say, well, only the women or men in a specific capacity, everybody else can be reprobates and do whatever they want and serve. We wouldn't say that. Another fact, we've already established that a wide variety of women, some married, some not, some younger, some older, serve in the church. That they are a a part of the fabric of the church. And yes, 
is a, it's a completely reasonable assumption to include in the women servants of the church wives of deacons who wish to serve alongside them in a support role. So the, the answer is really that you don't necessarily have to choose. We're going to land on this being any woman who serves with responsibilities in the church, which may include the subset of deacons' wives. And that makes sense. That's not really a big issue. We want all of you serving anyway. Some of you are going to have more responsibility than others, and whatever title you get is really irrelevant. The second question, and really probably the hotter topic, is what is the extent of their authority? What is the extent of their authority? Now, we've been clear that deacons do not carry the authority of overseers, of, of elders, in regards to teaching and authoritative oversight. That's even, even the, the male deacons. Paul is not contradicting himself from 1 Timothy 2.12, which says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. We could never say that suddenly in chapter 3, verse 11, he's reversing his position just a few paragraphs later. And that verse I just read from 1 Timothy 2.12, is not complicated. It's been made complicated by those who challenge it. But Paul is brief and succinct and to the point that, Number one, women are not to teach men in a public forum. And number two, women are not to have spiritual authority over men in the local church. There's never a time for a woman to be preaching to men or to be responsible to shepherd men. And this is simply because it's God's created order. That's the only reason. And when we went through that a number of months ago, we were very clear that the idea of a woman pastor is an oxymoron. You can be one or you can be the other, but you cannot be both. And any woman exercising spiritual authority over men is in total rebellion against God. There's no way around that. There's no exception. There's no asterisk to this. And so those two facts aren't hard to discern from that verse in 1 Timothy 2.12. In fact, we saw this confirmed with even more clarity here in chapter 3. One of the qualifications of an elder in the church is that he is to be the husband of one wife, literally a one-woman man. There is no way around that. And so what do we do with this information? We, we said that we're to find peace in the fact that this is God's created order. We're not to try to determine a new order that somehow improves upon what God has decreed. It's a very, very simple question for us. What is your authority? Your authority is either the infallible, inerrant, inspired word of God, or it's the fallible, errant, uninspired word of mankind. There are no other choices for spiritual authority. And so again, coming back to 1 Timothy 3.11, the ambiguity of this text gives us some leeway in applying it to a given local church context. And, and even the times in which we live gives us a little bit of leeway. The time in which we live today in our culture has absolutely rejected the idea of strong male leadership, not just in the church, but anywhere. But certainly our culture has railed against strong male leadership in the church that has leaked into and badly infiltrated so many churches. And so here at Grace Bible Church, we have taken a very strong stand. We have a, we've put forward a very, very male leadership emphasis to make sure there's no mistaking where we stand on this. But to be very clear, neither the deacons or the women servants, whether we choose to call them deaconesses or not, doesn't make any difference. None of them exercise overall spiritual authority in the church. Otherwise, what happens then is the church becomes a free-for-all of personal preferences, and now you have more shepherds than sheep. 
And that doesn't work too well. And certainly, we expect all servants in the church to exert spiritual example and influence, but this is a, this is a long way from authority. Servants in the church, as we said when we looked at the introductory message, they're go-betweens, they're couriers, they're messengers, they're table waiters from Acts 6, they're servants. Now, I mentioned earlier that there is no word for deaconess in Koine Greek and in biblical Greek. A a different term was used for deaconess in post-biblical times. The closest we have in the Bible is the form of diakonos, which is only used one time for a woman, Phoebe, in Romans 16.1, something being used one time is not a precedent. And it's not even really a feminine form. It's just kind of forced in there. We have in our church women serving all over the place and not just in women's ministry. And so regardless of, of title, I think today will really apply to all of you ladies to aspire to these qualities. So who are the women of verse 11? Women who serve, which may include wives of deacons as a subset. And what's the extent of their spiritual authority? None. That rests in the hands of the elders who are categorically and exclusively men and are accountable to Christ and Christ alone. So we kind of laid that foundation. Now we need to get to the even more important part. Much more to our focus this morning. For the women who serve, particularly with elevated spheres of responsibility... What does God require in terms of qualifications? And this is good for all the ladies of our church, and we're going to, in fact, get to everyone in the church here in a bit. This is a very important question about qualifications. This is not just a passing thought. It applies first and foremost directly to the serving women of the church, which ultimately should be all of you, but more broadly it applies to everyone in the church. And in fact, I'm going to take these qualifications a bit out of order because there's one in particular that's so weighty, so filled with implications that at at this point we're really talking to every single believer. And so let's walk through these qualifications. And again, I'm not only going to go out of order, I'm going to heavily weight one of them with our attention. Again, which is really for all of us because we've been through a couple of these already with the deacons. So first, first qualification, the women servants of the church must be dignified. They must be dignified. We saw this same qualification for deacons, so this is very fresh information, but just kind of by way of review. In English, dignity speaks of a a serious or composed manner or, or bearing. But the Greek term is much broader. It has a broader flavor to it. It speaks of being worthy of respect, of being honorable. It even has a, a flavor of moral uprightness to it. And we identified three associations that the New Testament bears out concerning being dignified. The first association we said was that dignity indicates age and experience. This doesn't mean that a certain age is necessary to serve. It just means that acting a certain age is. In Titus 2 verse 2, Paul tells Titus that he's to teach the older men to be dignified. Same word. And it's surrounded by some other admonitions which help us understand what this means. He's sober-minded, self-controlled, sound in faith and love, and in steadfastness. So dignity indicates age and experience. We also saw a second association that dignity indicates a life of prayer. We saw in 1 Timothy 2 verses 1 and 2 that a life of prayer creates dignity. It creates a seriousness about our faith in Jesus Christ. Dignity is associated with age and experience, a life of prayer. And the third association we saw is that dignity indicates deep thinking. 
deep thinking. Paul tells us in Philippians 4, 8, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, same Greek word, think about these things, to think about divine things and heavenly things, majestic things, awe-inspiring things. This is the sort of thinking that indicates a woman isn't mired in the day-to-day concerns of life, but thinking of these higher things, of heavenly things, of the things of God. In fact, there's a very similar phrase specific to the women of the church in Titus 2, verse 3. You don't have to turn there. It's very short. It says that women are to be reverent in behavior. Very similar to dignified. What does it mean to be reverent in behavior? Well, reverent is what it sounds like. It means to be holy, to be devout, to be pious. It means to act like she's been set apart as holy by her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And with this reverent in behavior, there's a sense of setting aside girlish things, of setting aside the sinful struggles of an earlier time, that that there's no time to struggle with gossip or with a sharp tongue that perhaps was more of an issue in her younger years. Now she's concerned with holiness. She's concerned with accurately representing her Savior. She's not having to be told over and over again to be reading her Bible, to be spending time in prayer, to fellowship and serve in the church. These are things that are just a part of the fabric of her life at this point. She's reverent in behavior. And this is a a great quality for all women to strive for, the putting aside of immature struggles. I want to dig into this just for a moment. Let me suggest some ways that this reverent behavior, this dignity is manifested. Reverent behavior or dignity is manifested, first of all, by speaking carefully. By speaking carefully. Proverbs ten nineteen: when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. In other words, if you want to sin less, talk less. The longer you're in the Lord, the more automatic it should be that you guard your tongue and your responses and your demeanor. And so reverent behavior is manifested by speaking carefully. It's also manifested by knowing God in non-negotiable spiritual habits. Non-negotiable spiritual habits. I'm astounded how many Christians don't read their Bibles. That's like saying, I'd like to get married and then never speak to you again as long as I live. How many Christians rarely pray? How can you be more godly if you're coasting on the encounter that others have had with God in the Word? At what point does church attendance stop being a question of if? Knowing God and non-negotiable spiritual habits. And reverent behavior is manifested also by what we might call living heavenward. Living heavenward. It's very sad to see an older woman trying to become more and more worldly the older she gets. Trying to travel more. Trying to buy more clothes. Trying to live more and more and more selfishly with the excuse, well, I've earned it. Trying to cram that last moment of of excitement and joy in. Seeing a a, a hundred-year-old woman on a cruise ship getting a tan. Why? (laughs) Instead, here's what godly women do. Colossians 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Yeah, if you want to go on a cruise ship, that's fine. No problem. Pray that it sinks and you go home to heaven. That's better. But that's reverent behavior. In fact, I want to use a word that's gone out of style. I I asked some of our youth recently, do you know what this word means? And none of them knew this meaning. So now I'm going to educate you. 
Being dignified as a Christian woman is very related to the concept, here's the word, of having class. Of having class. There's an elegance to your faith. Because you don't panic and fret. You don't respond to trials with sinful abandon. There's a refinement to your speech and to your demeanor. Because the things of heaven and Christ and the church and the cross and salvation have saturated your heart. And so these are the things upon which you think. And this thinking creates reverent behavior. It creates dignity. Second qualification. And I'm going to go out of order from the text. The women servants of the church must be sober-minded. They must be sober-minded. This is the same qualification that an elder must have, which means that all men and women are reaching for sober-mindedness. This is sometimes translated temperate. At its base meaning, it means originally to abstain from alcoholic drink. But it's used more broadly to speak of being self-controlled in the area of, I think the best way to say it is being level-headed. Being level-headed. Your responses aren't controlled by emotion. You don't use the excuse, well, that's how I'm feeling, so I'm responding in this over-the-top manner. There's a sense of thoughtfulness. There's a sense of self-discipline to say, I'd like to think about that for a bit and then get back to you. Why would this be such an important qualification for a woman serving in the church? Because sober-mindedness is what helps you work well with others, especially those in authority. Part of the curse of sin on womanhood as given to Eve by God is a tendency to want to control, a tendency to want to take over. Genesis 3.16, God told Eve, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, meaning that the curse of sin will cause women to not want to come under authority. Sober-mindedness takes time to consider the truth, takes time to consider the admonitions of Scripture and to act in accordance with what pleases the Lord, not with what pleases me. It takes time to think, what will please my God? And ultimately, what will please me is not in the mix. This sober-mindedness is manifested in what Peter says is pleasing to the Lord and the wife in the home. 1 Peter 3, 4, the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. This word gentle, it means humble, it means meek, it's not self-serving. What does it mean to be quiet? It doesn't mean literally silent, it means to be well-ordered, it means to have a tongue that's under control. That's sober-mindedness. Look, even in the most well-meaning, the most well-taught and focused local churches that understand the gospel ministry, like I pray that Grace Bible Church does, the fact is is that one of the hardest things about working together is that it's with people. That makes it very difficult, isn't it? Now, we mentioned with a positive twist, Euodia and Syntyche listed as Paul's fellow workers, and he says that right at the same time as saying that they needed to deal with their relationship. And in fact, Paul recruited a man in the church named Sisychus to mediate their problem because they weren't speaking to each other. Why is this sober-mindedness connected to gospel service? Why is this so important to the church? Because Satan would like nothing more than to disrupt and to interrupt kingdom work with the opposite of sober-mindedness, with lack of self-control, with an inability to be gentle and quiet, meaning humble and well-ordered. Because the moment that servants in the church began thinking of themselves instead of the work of the gospel, what happens to the work of the gospel? The the work comes to a halt, or at least it's hampered monumentally. I, I have the 
privilege, or I, I don't know if you call it a privilege, I guess I will, of working with some churches on occasion that are just destroyed by conflict within the ranks. And I get to talk to some of them. And what's happened to the gospel work? It's stopped completely because sober-mindedness has gone out the window. Listen, when souls hang in the balance, the least we can do for our Lord is be sober-minded. Amen? It's the least we can do. And this is where we have the most joy in Christ, in taking time to think and to be level-headed about what is actually the most important. Things like impulsiveness and being controlled by emotional responses, a lack of humility, none of these things lead to spiritual peace and joy. None of them do. But sober-mindedness does. It's a third qualification, again, out of order here. A woman in the church must be faithful in all things. Faithful in all things. Now, we take a long time to talk about faithfulness because it's a broad word which can speak, on the one hand, of what we believe, the content of our faith. It can also simply speak of being obedient. Here, it has the idea of being reliable, of being trustworthy, But it also has included in this a flavor of being faithful to believe and carry out what God has given for women to do. It's the only place of true Christian contentment, of course, is in the midst of God's will. Now, let me give you an example of a man, just so we kind of understand this. If we had a man in the church who is blatantly unfaithful in the things of God that God has called him to do as a man, to provide for his family, 1 Timothy 5, a man refuses to do that. If a man is cheating in his business, if a man is is just openly in sin and not responsive to what the Word of God says, and yet we put him in an important position of responsibility, what would we say about the church? We would say that holiness doesn't matter, right? In the same way, for women, God has given roles and responsibilities to the unmarried, It is to devote yourselves to the service of God in the church. 1 Corinthians 7.32 speaks of this freedom of the not yet married person to serve Christ. To the married, it is to obey the admonition of Titus 2, of 1 Timothy 2, the wonderful example of Proverbs 31, Ephesians 5, Colossians 3, and so forth. And so then to place a blatantly disobedient woman, same as a man, in the position of responsibility would be incongruent with our calling as a church. Colossians 1.28, that we proclaim Christ and we present everyone, what? Mature in the Lord. Mature in Christ. But on the other hand, a woman who yearns to follow Christ, yearns to obey the Lord, yearns to humbly know God in the fullness of trusting that following God's will is always the pathway to contentment and happiness. What a rich help and delight in the church. She's been faithful to obey the Lord in all the other things. And of course, that brings us to a very down-to-earth practical level. The qualification of being faithful in all things tells the church leadership that if she's faithful in all things, then what's the likelihood that she'll be faithful in the responsibility she's given in the church? The likelihood is high. So that makes sense. Well, one more qualification, and I saved this for last And if I used uh, three nails to nail the other pieces of wood in, we're going to use 20 on this one. In reality, we're not really talking to the women at this point. We're talking to all of us, myself, every elder, every deacon, every woman in the church, every child in the church. 
because this is a foundational, key, important concept that is at the heart of a church that's unified. If we don't get this, we can't be unified. If we do get it, we're completely unified. A church that's loving one another, a church that is what we desperately need, we need to be a fortress of peace and joy from the world around us. And the fourth qualification that we'll talk about this morning, the women servants of the church are not slanderers. They're not slanderers. We'll start specific to women because the, the text does, then we'll go more broadly. Literally in Greek, they're not she-devils. It's the feminine form of the Greek word diabolos. She's not diabolical, as we would say in English. This is a sober reminder for all of us. The sin of slander is not restricted to women by any stretch of the imagination. And slander, of course, is highly related to the topic of gossip. I, I, I could take a lot of time to talk about the differences. Just very briefly, gossip in the New Testament simply means tail-bearing, whispering, telling something in secret. It has to do with the context of a conversation. And in fact, it may mostly be made of truth. It might, might be entirely true. Which means, by the way, that the old Christian myth that says if it's true, it's not gossip, is totally false. It's a disgusting rationalization for acting in a way that Scripture defines as evil. Gossip is telling tales that are not yours to tell. Slander is more clearly spreading that which is false, speaking that which is false. But I'm going to say this, the differences between gossip and slander are really negligible. I'll tell you why. When you spread something you think is true from one perspective, you're still almost certainly skewing the truth and maybe even leaving out information that maybe you even choose to leave out or information you don't know. Proverbs 18:17 is very clear about this. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Listen to what the Bible says about slander and gossip. In Proverbs 10:19 when words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. There it is again, that too many words leads to sin. This is amazing. You want to sin less in your life starting now? Talk less. Instant results. Proverbs eleven thirteen: whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. This isn't a, a blanket command to, to never reveal something evil or wicked, but it's a principle of working in the context of a trusted relationship. How about Proverbs 16, 28? And listen to the poetic parallelism here. A dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. You notice the connection between dishonesty and slander. They are bedfellows. They go together. Proverbs 18.8, the words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down to the inner parts of the body, meaning that they corrupt your soul. They corrupt your heart. Proverbs 26.20, for lack of, fire, lack of wood, rather, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. In other words, if people stop slandering, there's no more arguments. The Apostle Paul very serious admonition to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 12, 20. He says, I fear that perhaps when I come, I may find you not as I wish and that you may find me not as you wish. That perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. That's a fatherly way of him saying, don't make me come after you. 
all those verses. You know what it tells us about slander and gossip? It comes from too many words. It makes you untrustworthy. It spreads conflict. It separates relationship. It stains your soul by going down into your heart. It stokes the fires of conflict. And if it goes unchecked, it indicates a completely chaotic local church. Now, why are we so attracted to this temptation? Slander is a form of power. It's a form of control in which you slant information maybe to make yourself look better and make someone else look less than favorable. Why is this so attractive? It is the original tactic of Satan. What did he do with Eve in the garden? He misrepresented God to change Eve's view of the word of God. He slandered God, and Eve bought it. Slander can be as overt as simply spreading false information. Or it can be more covert and sneaky by leaving out key information that would change the complexion of, a, of an understanding or a communication. In either case, it's the action of someone who's trying to gain power over someone else by placing them in a position to have their reputation harmed. And listen very carefully. Slander is not a slip of the tongue. Slander is not, whoops, I let go that this surprise birthday party is happening. Slander is not a slip of the tongue. It's a heart issue that says, I will harm this person or have no regard or love for her by diminishing her in the eyes of others. How do we know that this is a heart issue? Jesus said in Matthew fifteen nineteen, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. It's a heart issue. In fact, if you find yourself unable to stop slandering, it puts you in very serious company. Second Timothy 3, beginning in verse 2, Paul says, Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable. Do you think this is a Christian so far? No. Slanderous. Without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with deceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Why? Because they're false believers. They're not real. Habitual gossip is the sign of an unbeliever. Romans 1.29, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. You see why Paul says in Colossians 3.8, but now you, meaning the believers in Christ, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Why? Because we don't want to even look like an unbeliever, do we? Ephesians 4.29 gives us the opposite. We, we mentioned this last week, but Paul said, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. There's the negative, the corrupting talk, talk which is, is spoils, it corrupts. By the way, the idea of corrupting talk destroys the myth that anyone can say, oh, I can listen to negative one-sided talk about someone else without being corrupted. Ephesians 4.29 says, no, you can't. But there's the positive here too. And this is so encouraging because we get the real test for our speech and starts ultimately in our heart. But here's the test for our speech from, from Ephesians 4.29. Is it good first for building up? 
Is it good for building up? Nobody needs to explain to you what building up means. In other words, is your speech going to bolster someone's faith? Is it going to encourage them in the Lord? The second test for our speech, does it fit the occasion? This is one Greek word that means it's necessary. It is necessary. There may be judicious conversations that are necessary and they have a goal in mind, like helping you deal less sinfully with someone else. Or the elders perhaps need to speak about someone in the church so that we have the necessary ability to shepherd them. But does it fit the occasion? Is it necessary? And then the the third test for our speech, does it give grace to those who hear? In other words, are you being gracious? Will what you say make this person more godly or will it elevate you by putting someone else down? You ever been around someone that you can't get them to say a negative word about anybody else? And then are you ashamed of how frustrated you are with that? Does he give grace to those who hear? Now, why would this be so important for women who serve? Really, for anyone who serves. Because anyone who serves gets into the lifeblood of the church. And someone introducing slander and gossip into the bloodstream of the church corrupts the whole body. For some, this negative speech and tearing down others is so ingrained in your daily habits that you might not even be aware of it. Even now, you might be saying, I think think this might be me. So you have to wake up on a day and you have to say, today my entire focus is going to be on what I say, how I say it, and to whom I say it. That's all I'm going to focus on today. And by the way, you not only have a responsibility to watch your own heart and tongue, we have a responsibility to beware of those who won't. Proverbs twenty nineteen: whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a simple babbler. I believe that every single person listening to this today is determined to be more like Christ. You wouldn't be here if you weren't. To be one whose words accurately accurately reflect your love for Christ. But some of you in your heart might be honestly asking, but how do I overcome this sinful habit? How do I overcome this tendency? Because I know I have this tendency. Let me give you three ways to repent. Three ways to repent of this. Maybe levels or, or layers, maybe you could call it. First, repent of thinking that slander is okay. Repent of thinking that slander is okay. It's not okay. Philippians 4.8 reminds us it starts with the discipline of a mind, of the mind. That's where sin starts. We're to think on these things. So you have to be fully convinced that gossip and slander is sin and that will help you be ultra careful and that will help you begin the process in your mind and stopping your mind. We don't, as Christians, we don't listen to ourselves. Ourselves are sinful. We need to talk to ourselves. Self, stop thinking that. Think on things that are above. So first, repent of thinking that slander is okay. It's not. Second way to repent, repent of an addiction to gossip and slander. Repent of an addiction to gossip and slander. Oh, this is so insightful. Proverbs 18.8. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down to the inner parts of the body. What does that mean? It means it tastes good. And then it goes and it corrupts you. Unbelievers let this go unchecked. They openly enjoy speaking ill of others or listening to others. You ever go get your hair cut and just listen to the conversation among some of the people working there? It's just part of the job, isn't it? 
I'm going to tear down the last person who just walked through the door. I'm going to tear apart the person who's not working next to me. That shouldn't be where we find joy and satisfaction, and it's, and it's a lie. It feels good going down, but it makes you sick later, doesn't it? And the third way to repent, repent of carelessness, of being unaware. Turn instead to a habit of positive deflection and even confrontation when necessary. What do I mean by deflection? Deflection means turning the conversation to a different direction and not receiving it. Somebody comes to you and says, oh, so-and-so is always so grumpy. You might be saying, well, yeah, that's true. But instead of saying that, instead of listening, you would say, I know that I get grumpy sometimes and I don't know the whole story. We should pray for one another to be grumpy. You seem kind of grumpy to me right now. How about I pray for you? (laughs) Or you confront If she's been grumpy with you, I think you'd better speak to her about it. And if she does it again, you say, you've told me this before. You need to speak to her about it or I'm going to tell her that you spoke to me. In some churches, they call that the 24-hour rule. You know what that does? That stops gossip. How about this? Someone says, I need to share something with you, but you can't tell anyone. Very simple question. Is this something about you? Then yes. Listen and be helpful. If it's not about that person personally, then kindly tell your brother and sister in Christ that you're not okay with it. Can I put it this way? Gain the reputation that for you, the welcome mat for gossip is not out. Gain that reputation. And it won't take long. James 3 says that the tongue is like a fire, but if the fire has no fuel, then it goes out. It goes out. Can you imagine a church in which all of us speak graciously and kindly about and to one another And that if you have an issue with someone, then you work it out with that person. I can imagine a church like that. In fact, the elders of Grace Bible Church insist on a church like that. Because it's pleasing to the Lord. Our servants, our shepherds should be working to set that highest example as well. In fact, let me take this a step further. Can you imagine how content you would be if you simply never cultivated a hateful or negative image or thought about another? And if you had confidence that your brothers and sisters in Christ were doing the same thing, that would be heavenly, wouldn't it? And so once again, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You see, the cross of Christ was necessary because your thoughts and my thoughts We're sinful to the core. And these lead to sinful words and actions. And yet God, in His kindness, placed the wrath of God, which rightfully should have been aimed at you and at me. He placed this punishment on His own dear Son. Listen, the Bible says that liars and slanderers and gossips have only one place for them, and that is the lake of fire. And yet Christ exchanged His life for yours so that you, a liar, a slanderer, and a gossip would be viewed by God as perfectly truthful, perfectly righteous in thought, word, and deed. Doesn't it follow then that we would very eagerly and lovingly work to accurately reflect the imputed righteousness of God we so richly did not deserve? And so, ladies, as you strive to reflect the character of God and as you faithfully serve the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to put a picture in your mind. 
And I'm hopeful that by the time we're done, this picture never leaves you for the rest of your life. As you faithfully serve the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to think of Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. John 12 records that just days before Jesus' death, Mary took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and she anointed the feet of Jesus. She even wiped his feet clean with her own long hair. The house was filled with the fragrance and and Jesus even interpreted the event. He said that Mary was anointing him for his death and for his burial. That's the spirit of serving our Lord. That if you're teaching a women's Bible study, if you're mentoring the younger woman, if you're setting up a table for a women's luncheon where the word of God will be proclaimed, if you're mopping a floor, if you're teaching children, if you're changing a diaper and praying for those babies, if you're washing the window, if you're making a meal, if you're praying for the lost, if you're giving a ride, if you're moving chairs, if you're singing to lead others, if you're encouraging others in humble, unseen ways, if you're helping those in need, you are anointing the feet of Jesus. You're honoring your Savior and put this picture in your mind, emblazon it. The sacred silence of Mary wiping Jesus' feet with her hair. The sweet fragrance of that perfume all around. The feel of Mary humbly bowing and cleaning Jesus' feet with her own hands. The sight of Jesus watching her with love and affection. And the sweet sound of the words of Jesus saying, you are anointing me for burial. And so from now on, whatever task you're doing, yes, even if it's something that frustrates you in the church, put yourself at the feet of Jesus, anointing him and serving him and honoring him. And like the women of old, Joanna and Susanna and Phoebe and Mary Magdalene and Mary of Rome and Tryphena and Tryphosis and and Persis, the Samaritan woman at the well, Anna and Timothy's mother and grandmother, Priscilla, Euodia, Syntyche, Junia, Lydia, Mary, the mother of Jesus, like them, you too will be added to the hall of faith of those women who expended themselves for the sake of Christ. The Lord has graciously seemed to have opened the door for us to move to a new facility. Let us be worthy of that. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you in gratitude for the clarity of the word of God. You do not have us guess about who you are. You do not guess about who, have us guess about who we are. And you do not have us guess about how we are to love you and to obey you. I praise you and thank you once again, Lord, for your kindness to this little group of believers that has been meeting on Young Street for the last number of years. We thank you, Lord, for, for what seems to be our move forward with a new facility. We would ask you, God, to let that be a doorway to the kingdom of heaven, that many would hear the gospel there and come to saving faith, that we would baptize many, that we would see the kingdom expanded because you have been faithful to us as we are attempting to be faithful to you. And Lord, we would pray for all in our church who are serving, which really ultimately should be all of them, all of us. Lord, that we would expend ourselves for Christ, striving for Christ-like character, both men and women, Lord. That we might be presented holy and pure before you, that you would be pleased to commend this body of believers that we've, we've given a nickname, Grace Bible Church but you would be pleased to commend us 
that we made an impact for the kingdom of our Savior, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one we bow down to, the one we worship. Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen.